Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to start reading in verse 18. Now, those of you, I know you all are always ahead of me, and so before someone says, we didn't cover 12 through 17 last week, I know that. And uh, hopefully, my plan is, we will come back to those at the end of our lesson today, because I think it's intentional that he, he bookends this passage that we're about to study with verses 12 to 17, and then chapter 13, 1 through 9, and what is here in the middle, verses 18 to 29, is the engine that drives these other two exhortations that surround it. So let's dive in at verse 18, <clears throat> read to the end of the chapter, Hebrews chapter 12. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we pray that by means of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Jesus, you would reveal yourself to us today. Reveal your whole self to us. Show us your glory. It's an awesome thing to ask. Because we know that should we face you in our own uh, delusion of righteousness or our own delusion of greatness or goodness, should we try to face you that way, we will be consumed. We pray that we would see you in all of your awesomeness, but that that might drive us to Christ 
and would drive us to Him in a way perhaps we have never experienced before, in a way that we know that we know we are in an unshakable, infallible Redeemer. Lord, fall on us. Reveal Yourself to us today unmistakably. In Jesus' name we pray it, and God's men said together, Amen. I have a friend who goes all the way back to college days. He's not Todd Erickson. He is a friend, but it's not, I'm not talking about Todd now. Another friend goes back to college days. This friend was a really popular guy on campus. He's, he was handsome. He was athletic. He was jovial. He was everybody's friend. And I was uh, well ahead of him in school, so I went on, graduated, and sort of lost track of him until he showed up in my church, the church I was pastoring, years later, uh, after he had finished his schooling, and uh, some, his undergrad and his graduate schooling for education, I didn't recognize him. Uh, he was so different. He was not the happy, jovial uh, big man on campus. He was, he was timid. He was fearful. He was, he was depressed. Now, he wouldn't say he was depressed, but he certainly was act, acting like it. He also acted like he was... He was he was afraid someone was going to see him in our church. So uh, I eventually figured out who he was, and we made contact again, and he asked if he could come see me, and he met with me, and <clears throat> he had uh, some tremors, and he was very nervous, looked down at the floor a lot. He didn't admit that anything was wrong. But he just kept talking about God, God. He would pronounce his name that kind of drawn out like he was, like he was uh, trying to imitate uh, someone on the radio impersonating God. And uh, he, was, he, was, uh, he, he said that he went to another church in town, which was a church in same denomination if in, and a uh, church that would call itself evangelical and and you would hear Jesus' name there, and you would think uh, for all practical purposes it was a Christian church. It was a Christian church, but he was hearing a very different message, and he had been sent to that church by someone whose teaching he had come under uh, after I had left college. And that man whose teaching he came under was very, what we just say, is legalistic. He's a man that emphasized the law of God a lot. The otherness of God, the holiness of God, the vengefulness of God, the demands of God to be perfect and holy and righteous and obedient, and to be involved in world missions and to do mission work and go to the ends of the earth where no one else has the gospel and do God's will. He hung on that man's every word. So when he moved to where I was pastoring, that man told him, that man who knew me, told him not to go to my church, he told him to go to the other church. 
So that explains why he looked a little, little nervous, a little guilty as he would sneak into my church when his church was not in session. He said, I, I just want to meet with you because I'm just having, I, I just know I'm outside of God's will. And I can't find satisfaction. I can't find peace. I know I'm doing something wrong. I'm out of God's will. And I hear something in this church that's different. But, and then he would guard himself. He didn't want to go there. I said, what you're hearing is grace. You're hearing the grace of the gospel. He said, well, I also hear the law. Yes, you do hear the law in the context of the grace of the gospel. And I asked him, when was the last time you were happy? He said, when I was in this certain country, working under this man's leadership, and he would tell me every day what I was supposed to do. And I was happy at the end of the day because I knew I had done what he told me to do. I said, well, you'll never be happy again. Because you can never spend every day, all day with him. Plus, eventually, you're going to make him unhappy. I'll come back to him in a moment. But I wonder how many of you may feel a similar thing. Maybe you're not depressed. Maybe you're not thinking of a particular person who can make you happy or whose will you are constantly trying to fulfill, but there is something missing in your Christian experience, or maybe you're missing the Christian experience altogether, because there is this haunting in the back of your mind that God is not happy with you, and that you are trying desperately to make Him happy with you, even getting up early on Thursday mornings and coming to listen to this preacher drone on, and you think, if I endure this enough, He'll be happy with me. Or if I do enough of this at church, or give enough away of this, or if I can just do this better with my children, or if I can just, what, do something, I can get Him off my back. This hound of heaven whom I never can please. Or as Martin Luther said, a father that, that I, he said at one time, I hate God, I hated God because he was never pleased with me. I could never please him. Well, I need you to orient you to this passage so that you can get the strategy of what the author is trying to do. And it's not new to you because we've been introduced to this Hebrew structure already. We call a chiastic structure. Uh, that the, in other, the, the main point is in the middle of the passage, not at the top of the topical sentence like we write. You know, we write a topic sentence in our paragraph and everything else follows from there. In the Hebrew chiastic structure, which is a kind of poetic device within uh, all kinds of literature, the, the main answer, the main idea is in the very center. For instance, in the book of Jonah, the whole book of Jonah is summarized in uh, three words, salvation belongs to the Lord. 
It's in the precise center of the book of Jonah. And so the, those reading that could even number the sentences or maybe even the words. I'm not sure if it's quite that precise, but it's certainly in the, in the exact center of the book. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is a similar strategy. The gospel lies in the middle of this passage. And this passage is not bounded by the verses or chapters that you have in your, in your Bible. Uh, Gordon, wherever you are, I know I'm driving you crazy because I haven't done the first slide yet. You're just fine. You're just fine. Uh, this is all introductory. Um, uh, so, on one side of, let's, let's just say this is a sandwich. The first piece of bread up here at the top is verses 12 through 17 of chapter 12. Chapter 12, 12 through 17, that's the first piece of bread. The bottom piece of bread is chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. And then there are various other things on the sandwich. It's like one of those holiday ham sandwiches. It's just piled with so much stuff you can't get your mouth on it, right, Don? But here in the very middle, the very middle of this sandwich is verses 22 to 24. Verses 22 to 24, that's the precise center. And it's the gospel that drives everything else. All right, are you with me? All right, so now we'll go to the slides. And this is our point, the proposition. God, we must respond to the superior promise of God in the gospel with faithful worship. The first point is, the first point is, we must respond to the superior promise of an unshakable kingdom. We must respond to that, realizing that God is a judge. God is a judge. Those are the points made in verses 12 through 17, 13, 1 through 9. That's the point made in verses 18 to 21 and the verses 25 to 29. Everything outside of verses 22 to 24 is making this one point, God is the judge. Therefore, we must worship Him with awe. We must worship Him with awe. We must worship Him with reverence. And here's what he reveals to us. This is the kind of God he tells us. This is who he tells us God is. Number one, as a judge, he is unapproachably holy. Verses 18 to 20. <clears throat> you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. Now, what's he talking about? He's alluding to the giving of the law in the Old Testament. Remember the children of God come out of Israel I mean, out of Egypt, and they come into the desert, they come to Mount Sinai, and God says, I want you to, Moses, I want you to come up here and talk to me, I'm going to give you the law, I'm going to tell you how the people are supposed to live, and uh, I want you to build, a, I, want you to, I want you to establish a boundary around the foot of the mountain, and I'm going to inhabit this mountain and I'm going, to, I'm going to convince you that I have come by these visible 
and palpable signs of my presence. I'm going to shake the ground. I'm going to darken the sky. I'm going to send lightning and thunder. By means of all five senses, you are going to know that I have come down on that mountain and I'm giving my word. I want you to come up. I'm not going to, I'll protect you, but if, if so much as a donkey wanders up to that mountain and touches a pebble of it, I'll strike him dead. Well, even Moses said, that's just, that's, that's way too much. That's literally going to blow my circuits. And I, 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 want you to, I want you to stop talking. You're just making me so nervous, I want you to stop talking. And God ignores that, and He says, come on up the mountain. But it is a holy place, unapproachably holy. I want you to, I want to communicate to my people that I am entirely other than they are. I am the only source of holiness. They have not an ounce of goodness. They have no possibility of becoming good, becoming righteous, contributing anything to their salvation, and contributing anything to me. I am unapproachably holy. I am entirely holy, and you are entirely unholy. Secondly, he says, I want you to, uh, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews says, I want you to realize from this Old Testament picture of the giving of the law, verse 21, I want you to recognize that I am sovereignly terrifying. I'm so terrifying, it was so terrifying, the sight to Moses that he said, I tremble with fear. That's Deuteronomy 18. 16, in Deuteronomy 9, 19, Moses is saying, I think I'm going to die. Just, I haven't even experienced it yet. Now, he will experience it, and God says, I'm going to pass by you, and the only way you're going to survive is I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and you're going to see an indirect reflection of my holiness. But Moses says, just the description of it is enough to kill me. I'm having a panic attack, he says. I am utterly undone, terrified by the description of your holiness. <clears throat> I read a few years ago about, about uh, an experience that Somerset Mom had near the end of his life. Somerset Mom, the the um, famous playwright of the 1930s, the most, uh, the, uh, got, was paid more than any other author in his day. And um, his nephew, Somerset Maugham, was raised by his, his uncle, who was a vicar and uh, apparently a very cruel and, um, and just emotionally uh, distant man who did permanent damage to Somerset. This was his son. So <clears throat> Robin Mom wrote a biography about Somerset, and I think the rest of the moms, it, it, it just promises to be too depressing for me to read the whole book. Uh, you can imagine writing a whole book about your relatives, and there's not a good one in any of them, including yourself. And uh, <clears throat> uh, Robin himself died a rather premature death with a broken heart, but he described an incident that he had with his uncle. His uncle was 91 years old. Somerset mom was 91 years old, and 
<clears throat> he had everything that any, any uh, aspiring person would think would satisfy him. He had made, you know, by today's standards, gazillions of dollars, and he had a, a beautiful house uh, overlooking the Mediterranean. Robin came to, to uh, visit him. And at one point, while they were visiting, uh, Rob uh, Somerset <clears throat> said this, and Robin, for whatever reason, had brought his uncle a, a Bible, a large print Bible. And uh, Somerset said, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? He's reading it from the Bible. I must tell you, my dear Robin, that the te that text used to stand opposite my bed when I was a child. But of course, it's all bunk. The thought of it is interesting, but it's all bunk. Later uh, that evening... Somerset mom was on his couch, and he said, oh, Robin, I'm so tired. I've been a failure the whole way through my life. I've made mistake after mistake. I've made a hash of everything. Oh, he said, Uncle, you, you have everything. You've, you're a successful man. You're the most famous writer alive. Doesn't that mean something? It's brought me nothing but misery. Everyone who's got to know me well has ended up hating me. My whole life has been a failure. And now it's too late to change. It's too late. Robin's back was to the door, entering the room. And after Somerset said those words, he looked up as if he saw someone coming, <clears throat> coming into the room. And he screeched with terror and said, go away, I'm not ready, I'm not dead yet, I'm not dead yet, I'm not dead yet, I tell you. Robin said, his high-pitched, terror-stricken voice seemed to echo from wall to wall. I looked around the room, but it was empty. There's lots of, everyone confirms that that speech, that account is true, and as you can imagine, there are any number of theories to what it is. Did he have some kind of Faustian relationship with the devil? That he'd sold his soul? He was coming to retrieve him? We don't need to get that, uh, that, that wild with our interpretation. This is the kind of thing we see in Scripture. He is perceiving the holiness of God. And all it would take would be, save me, Jesus. He never said that. He encounters the terrifying, judgmental presence of God, and he tries to rebuff him. He tries to protect himself by holding up his strength, his pathetic strength, saying, Go away from me. I'm not ready. Go back. God is not only a terrifying judge, he is eternally condemning. Verses 25 to 27 and verse 29. 25 to 27, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that is all the people who have rejected God throughout history, <clears throat> much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. <clears throat> and then verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. 
What is this bad news supposed to teach us? What's it supposed to do for us? That God is totally other, that He is untouchable, that He is eternal judge. He's terrifying in that judgment. It is to drive us absolutely to the end of ourselves, all of our resources, all of our schemes to make ourselves righteous, acceptable, make us uh, conform ourselves in such a way that God will finally be happy with us. There's a very famous <clears throat> Scottish preacher of the 18th century named, 19th century named, uh, I'm sorry, 18th century named Thomas Chalmers. Thomas Chalmers' uh, first congregation was out in the country, in rural area, farming community. People drove their wagons from miles around to come to his church. Chalmers was a young, fiery preacher who did not know the Lord. It wasn't uncommon in those days because someone could be highly esteemed culturally, he could make a good living as a, as a pastor, as a preacher. He didn't need a personal relationship with Christ. And those who had taught him most likely had said, here, if you do well enough, if you do the right things, you keep the Ten Commandments, you are uh, <clears throat> culturally sensitive and socially appropriate, then that's what God wants you to be. He wants you to be a gentleman, a gentlewoman. So Thomas Chalmers is preaching that kind of message to his people. And you can imagine these hardworking farmers driving in week after week after week, driving their wagons in week after week after week, and everybody in the church knows the gospel except their pastor. There wasn't any church hopping in those days. They kept coming to their church knowing our pastor's not a Christian. We have to come to church as a mission to pray that man into heaven. We leave a church when he parts his hair the wrong way. But these people are committed to their church and to the gospel. So they, <clears throat> they would come week after week, and they prayed for their pastor to be saved. And God answered their prayer this way. He made him so sick, everybody thought he was going to die. So if you don't like me as your preacher, just don't pray for me. You <clears throat> just Maybe you go somewhere else. But they prayed for their... They prayed for their pastor to come to the end of himself. That's what they were praying. And here, Chalmers had been pre preaching, you know, you've got, to, you've got to be involved in culture. And they thought, my only culture is my farm. I can, you know, and you've, got to be, you've got to do right. Well, we do. We do right. But we have a different motive for doing it. So he put flat on his back. And he can't do anything that he's been telling his people to do. He cannot do anything. He can't get out of bed. He can't preach. He can't, he can't even pray. He can't feel. He, he, he feels so bad. He can't put two words together. He's about to die. And he thinks, I am, he was terror stricken. He had been taken to the end of himself. I have no resources with which to make myself acceptable to God. My God is a consuming fire. He's terrifying in His judgment. He is exacting and demanding in His requirements. So he realized there's only one rule, only one law he could obey. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. 
So he cried out to Christ, save me. Well, the Lord not only healed his body, but he saved his soul. And he came back and he preached that gospel to his people. That is what our author is doing to us. He is driving us to the end of ourselves. Everything that I've said about God is true. It is true. He's a terrifying God. He's untouchable in His holiness. He's eternally condemning. It is also true about you that you don't stand a chance facing Him that way. So what are we going to do? Verse 22, second point, because God is a Redeemer. We must worship Him in gratitude. We must run not to the mountain of judgment, not to the mountain of the law. We must run to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We run to Jesus. What do we find there? What do we find? We find a living God, first of all. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion to the living God. Why is that important to us? Well, it's important because, for one, every other religion, every other philosophy has a leader, a teacher, and you can go visit their tomb. But you go to Israel and you look for the tomb of Jesus, you find the tomb, there's nothing there. You go in that little, you go in that little sepulcher, you know, if you've been to Jerusalem, you go in that little sepulcher. And uh, you turn around, and you get ready to walk out. You have to lower your head. Or bump, bump, don't bump your head on that little hole going out. But there's a sign over the top. He is not here. He is risen. And our God, revealed in Jesus Christ, is alive, and we say it in our hymn, He ever lives above. For what reason? For us to intercede. We've been hearing about that throughout the book of Hebrews. Our high priest is at the right hand of God, constantly interceding for us. The only way we can escape this judgment, this this God who can judge, this God who is unapproachably holy, is that we have His Son at His right hand with bleeding wounds saying, Oh God, remember my righteousness given to them. Secondly, we find in in this Jesus whose kingdom... Uh, We are the glad subjects of, if Christ is your Savior, a joyful community. Verse 22, we come to thousands upon thousands of angels in festal assembly. You know, there are few things worse. There are few things more undermining to the gospel than a dour Christian. Uh, You know, some people have a permanent scowl on their face. Uh, I've, I've been tempted to tell some people like that. I said, you know, I, I'm glad Jesus is your Savior, but you're such a poor witness with your countenance. Can you just keep that a secret to yourself? It's a bad advertisement for the rest of what we're trying to do. 
We come to Christ who makes us joyful. There's a, and Paul says in Romans 14, the kingdom of God, Romans 14 verse 17, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's not about rules. It's not about rule keeping. The kingdom of God is about righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. It's about peace with God. You're no longer terrified, living in dread. It is about joy in the Holy Ghost. I have a, I, there, there was a, there was a, uh, there's a Puritan house in, or was a Puritan house in Ipswich, New England, and uh, the, the Puritan who lived there before carved into his mantle three words that he thought characterized the Puritan life or the Christian life. Sobriety, justice, and piety. Those are good words. Sobriety, seriousness about the Christian life, and justice, yes, just of God, and piety, yes. But Nathaniel Ward was a Puritan who followed and bought that same house. He looked at the mantle and he said, there's something missing. I know what it is. And he added the fourth word, laughter. Sopriety, justice, piety, yes, and laughter. We've been set free. We've come to a holy mountain that's reigned over by Christ, a joyful community. Thirdly, we come, verse 23, to an assembly of heirs. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, you might be tempted to think that firstborn in verse 23 refers to Christ. Well, Christ is the firstborn of God. He is the uniquely born of God. But this word in Greek is plural. We come to an assembly of many firstborn. How is that possible? Even, even, even my twins, one had to come before the other. But here he says, when you are in Christ, you're all firstborn. That means everyone is an heir. There's not a descending distribution of the, of the will or the estate. When you come to Christ, you are, we say in theology, united to Christ. He unites his, your life to His so that you become as much an heir of God's righteousness and love and peace and joy as Jesus is Himself. We become the firstborn. We are an assembly of firstborn children. Now, presently in my household, I can't imagine that. That'd be a nightmare, an assembly of firstborn children. But these are all firstborn children who are all like Christ. And we could go back. I'm not going to take time to do this. I want you to write, you to write these things down, these verses down. I want you to look at what you are an heir of. Chapter 1, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 9, verse 15. And chapter 12, verses 5 to 8. 1, 14, 2, 10. 9, 15, 12, 5 to 8. All of these, in all of these passages, you are identified as an heir of all that God has. You are an heir of everything that Christ possesses because you are united to Jesus. 
Number, verse 23, that means you're absolutely secure of Christ. If you're united to Christ, you're absolutely secure. Verse 23, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That is, you are written into the Lamb's book of life. That's the way he's referred to in Daniel chapter 7 verse 10 refers to a book of life. Philippians chapter 4 verse 3 refers to a book of life. Revelation chapter 20 verses 12 to 15, the Lamb's book of life. Why are you written into the book of life? Because it's the Lamb's book of life. Why are you written into the book of life? Because you're written into the Lamb. Why do we have an unshakable kingdom? Because it's built out of all kinds of expensive jewels and streets of gold and so forth? No, we have an unshakable kingdom because we have an unshakable king. We have an unshakable kingdom because we are united to the life of Christ. Because we are mysteriously joined to Jesus. And because Jesus can never be unloved, Jesus can never be rejected, Jesus can never be judged, Jesus can never be condemned, Jesus can never be disowned, because all of those things are true of Jesus, they're true of you. And then fourthly, we have a better blood, verse 24. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know the blood of Abel, Cain killed his brother, and then throughout Scripture, Abel's blood is, is, is a reference to vengeance, crying our justice, a cry for justice. I, my blood has been shed unjustly. It's what we cry out for Andrew Brunson, our, our, um, our missionary, our EPC missionary held in Turkey, unjustly, we say, who cry his blood, the blood of his life. He hasn't been killed, but his, his blood of his life, his sufferings cry out, demand justice. Abel's life demands justice. The blood of Jesus is the answer. The blood of Jesus doesn't cry out saying, feel sorry for me, stand up for me, I've been killed unjustly. The blood of Jesus says, because my blood has been shed once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. There is no more judgment for sin. This blood declares forgiveness and atonement and justification. And then finally, we come to a kingdom that demands acceptable worship. Verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And if it can't be shaken, what must we do? Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let us offer faithful worship, we could say. Faithful worship is worship that recognizes God because He is awesome and totally other and, and, uh, and completely holy, demands my reverence. But faithful worship, that is, that is, by receiving His grace by faith alone, demands that I approach Him boldly because I come in Jesus and I say, I delight in Your holiness. I delight in Your goodness, Your perfections, because I have been made worthy through Christ 
And I come here to say thank you. I come here with empty hands. I don't have anything to bring. There's nothing I can give to you. There's nothing more I can do for my salvation. There's nothing I can do to make you love me any better. There's nothing I can do to make myself better. I come entirely saying thank you to you. I haven't forgotten verses 12 to 17, 13, 1 to 9. Those are a list, those are lists of things, of, of acts of faithfulness that we do in response to this grace. It's not that if you keep yourself sexually clean and that if you love your neighbor and live at peace with him and you are holy yourself, it's not that then you are welcome to the mountain because you have earned your salvation. No, you are liberated first by Christ and in gratitude for that liberation and with Jesus living inside you, you eagerly do those things because you love Him. Let me take you back to the order of the appearance at Mount Sinai to illustrate that point. That you remember, I said early on, that they came to Mount Sinai in the desert to receive the law, their instructions. But I, everything in the Bible, its order even, is for a purpose. You, you remember, they did not go, they did not start keeping the law, and then God said, you know, you've been such good boys and girls, I'm going to let you out of Egypt. No, they complained, they, they were aggravated by Moses, they even wanted to stay there, and God expelled them from Egypt. He redeemed them from Egypt. He dragged them out of Egypt. He redeemed them. And only after He redeemed them did He bring them to the foot of the mountain to receive the law. And when He presents the Ten Commandments, what does He say? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, in response to this grace, have no other gods before me, and so forth. Grace precedes law. Grace drives obedience. The gospel inspires a life of doxological obedience, gratitude for grace. I go back to my friend now that I started with, that college friend. He wrote me the other day. He does write me occasionally. He's kept me up with his life through the years. One day he wrote me and he said, I want you to know I've, I've moved back home and my church is loving me well. Then he wrote me another day and he said, I, I, I want you to know I, I'm, uh, I'm discovering the gospel in ways that I've never even understood it before. And I, I want you to know I'm getting married I want you to know I've, I'm having children. I want you to know I, I'm, I think God's calling me to the ministry. I want you to know I graduated from seminary. I want you to know that I'm, I've taken a post actually back at my home church as a minister to senior adults. And he wrote me the other day and said, I've got another opportunity at another church. Would you write me a reference? And, and then uh, he has a link there to his his own web page, which is just his resume. And I went there and looked at the, this picture of his face, which is beautiful. 
a beautiful picture of what the gospel can do even to your countenance. He has a contagious smile. And the first line is, I am a testimony to the transformational power of the gospel. That essentially was his only qualification. The rest was, I've got a wife, I've got children, I've done some ministry. That's the only testimony any of us really can have. We are testimonies to the transformational power of the gospel. And when you give into it totally, you'll know that the kingdom of God is not about rules. It's not about trying to make God like you. It's righteousness, peace, and laughter in the Holy Spirit.